there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in international affairs or political science or both, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is the president and founder of a leading global political risk research and consulting firm and is a New York Times bestselling author of nine books covering topics like America's role in the world, globalism, populism, and the free market. But before I introduce you to Dr. Ian Bremmer, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the guests and the episodes we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my robusto drinking political risk lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is the multi-talented Dr. Ian Bremer, the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He's also the president and founder of G Zero Media, where he hosts the weekly digital and broadcast show G Zero World, where he explains the key global stories of the moment, sits down for in-depth conversations with the newsmakers and thought leaders of our time who are shaping our world, and he takes your questions. Ian, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I mean, I'm ready to go, so there is that. But you're not caffeinated. I'm not. It's early. So, I mean, just to let you know, I'm an early morning person. So if you want to know, my espresso shots tend to happen right before dinner so I don't fall asleep before dessert. That's the way it works. Is that right? So you don't drink it during the day? I don't know. If you like actually see my routine in the morning, you realize it's okay just the way it is. Uh, People would probably want to kill me inside my organization if I had any further early morning energy. Okay. I was going to say you could also try more sleep. (laughs) No, the sleep is good. The sleep is good. The sleep okay. is not a problem. I, for whatever reason, you know, I kind of feel bad about this because you'd think that with the advances we'd made in capitalist society, that we could be flexible enough to allow people to work the hours that they're most functional. Yes. And I mean, it would clearly make lives of human beings much, much better. But, you know, like so many things, we're taking our time with that one. Yes, we are. Although when you work for yourself, you can set your own hours. You know, when you have 200 people in your company, you realize very quickly that you work for them. You don't work for yourself. True. True. So let's dive into the 10 espresso shots. These are questions to help our young listeners learn how to break into the career, the profession of our guests, in this case, into international affairs, political science, political risk. What entry level jobs, Ian, are available to young people who want to break into your field? Lots. And, you know, frankly, that is a wonderful response because when I started this company, there weren't any. You know, you you get an advanced degree in political science and you want to be a political scientist in the private sector. That job literally did not exist, which is why I started my company 22 years ago. I had no intention of starting a company today. 
there's actually a little political risk industry out there. We have a researcher program at Eurasia Group for top folks coming from, you know, sort of universities, really smart, really interested, but not with any experience. You can go to places like Control Risk Group or Teneo or Oxford Analytica. You, there are small political risk consultancies in the big accounting firms. You've even got places like BlackRock that have little political science think tanks now, KKR. So, I mean, honestly, political scientists who are really bright and inquisitive and want to be relevant, they want to be behavioral political scientists, have plenty of places they can go. Terrific. What are those entry-level jobs? They're usually they're researcher jobs. So, I mean, they're jobs where you're not getting, you're not waiting in line for coffee. You're not filing things. You're actually doing usually a pretty wide variety of research tasks supporting strategists and other people that have to put together a lot of background materials and a lot of support materials for decisions that are being made in those organizations. Okay. And is this for someone who has a graduate degree or are these jobs available to young people who've graduated with political science degrees? In the case of my firm, it is literally no experience but your undergraduate. You're actually not qualified if you've done work beyond that. We want them fresh and eager and curious. <laughs> but there are also, I mean, definitely if you end up getting a master's in international affairs from one of the big schools, you know, SIPA or SICE or, or Fletcher, or any of those, then there are an entire host of jobs available for the three to five years out as well. I mean, again, this is a, this is a growing industry. I'm really proud to say it. And it's a place where there are going to be a lot more opportunities for young people. Exciting. So what is a useful hard skill, soft skill that you look for in the young people that you hire in? Hard skill is understanding not just political science, but how it applies. So in other words, what are the kinds of things that businesses are interested in? What are the kinds of bits of political movements and and decision making that matters to a marketplace understanding timing understanding the transactionalism of some of these decisions very important right those are hard skills that matter you can't just be brilliant you have to be relevant soft skills couple one is level of curiosity and ability to recognize when you might be wrong, how you might be wrong, how flexible you are intellectually to dissenting opinions to people who have views that you don't necessarily agree with. Do you follow those people? Do you read with them? Do you respect really important soft skill? And not enough people have it. You can't fake it. It's really hard to fake respect for people that disagree with you. That has to come authentically from your level of curiosity and what you do on a daily basis. It's a really easy one to interview for. I also think, frankly, and this comes from having a few decades on my odometer as well, that that takes a certain degree of maturity and self-confidence to do that. Yeah, I completely agree. And yet we all know 50, 60, 70 year olds that are completely incapable of it. It's also a question of how you were raised, where you were raised. Did you travel? What were you exposed to? In my case, I don't think I ever had a problem with this one because of my mother. She would have slapped me senseless if I had been a little bit less ecumenical. It's the way she grew up, even though she didn't have an education. So I, I, I really, I wish I could say that I know how to identify from a bio, from a CV, what we're going to get. I'm sometimes stunned. The person looks great on paper and they just are a disaster on this issue in person. But fortunately, again, it's a very easy thing to say no to. Great. Is someone's major a deciding factor 
to get into this profession? In other words, if they haven't studied political science, is it a deal breaker? No, not really. I mean, in the sense that I think there's lots of life experience that can be relevant. I think that good analytic journalists can, who haven't majored in poli sci, but have done a lot of field work, can make it up. I think the thing about a political science background is it does help in terms of structure of your worldview. It helps you to do more comparative politics, understand that it's not all about one individual or one country, one decision-making process, helps you show that all politics around the world all do have some comparable factors that you need to be looking at. But I really don't think that you have to have gone through a full poli-sci program to be effective in the field. What about a graduate school degree? And this is less so for the entry level, more so for those who really want to make it maybe to the C-suite or just be senior in their positions. Robert Kaplan works for us at Eurasia Group as one of our managing directors, 18 books, one of the most respected macro thinkers in the field, period. Our clients love him. He's got an undergraduate degree. I think that the reason you get a graduate degree has more to do with the network effects from the people that you meet there, your colleagues, the professors, and the rest, which is one reason I would say don't bother with a PhD if you can't get into one of the top programs because you lose those network effects completely. It would be, you'd be much better off spending those four, five, six, seven, eight years in some cases actually getting hard work experience and developing those networks yourselves in the field than it would be to be in a university setting where the people around you just don't have them. And what kind of grad school degree do you think are the most useful ones to have? Well, I mean, that's why I said first and foremost is the place. I mean, you know, I really disagree with Malcolm Gladwell on this, who says it doesn't matter where you go to school as long as it's a decent education. I couldn't disagree more. You need content, but you also need to be able to communicate and you have to have access to gatekeepers. And, you know, Harvard has access to gatekeepers. Stanford does. Yale has fewer, but they exist. Columbia once you start talking about really good state schools and really good second and third tier schools, the network effects go to almost zero. It pains me to say that, but it's really important. Beyond that, yeah, you definitely want to make sure that the program you're going into is a solid program. And I think that ensuring that you can take courses that are fairly far afield so you don't get too narrow in a single country, too narrow in a single discipline, but can do a little economics, can do a business school course or two, can learn a bit about management, psychology. When I was at Stanford, I was able to take a course in applied psychology from Amos Tversky, who wrote all of those papers with uh, Daniel Kahneman, eventually won the Nobel, Tversky died. It made an enormous difference in the way I thought about how politics applied to the world. And if they hadn't let me take that course, so I had to do all poli sci, I wouldn't have been exposed to it, it would change my thinking. So I think those things matter. Great points. What about life experiences, Ian? What, in your opinion and in your experience, do you think are the most useful ones for someone starting out in this field to have? Traveling, you know, actually having a chance to expose yourself to a completely different context of people and thought processes that are around you. My first trip outside the U.S. was to the former Soviet Union in 1986, when Gorbachev had just become the general secretary and before Perestroika had started. And I mean, enormously impressionable. I was, you know, all of 16 years old back then, made an enormous impact on the way I thought about the world and how limited what I had read, the newspapers, the media, the conversations I had been exposed to before that. I think, you know, young people, especially starting out, really need to have that kind of experience. And I know that you also speak Russian. So how important is it 
to study languages as well. I mean, it's becoming somewhat less important in the sense that within five years, I think that the real-time translation programs that will exist on your smartphone will allow you to communicate in foreign countries in a way that I could only have dreamt of when I was traveling. What's important about learning language is it helps you understand the mindset. And it helps you develop the relationships that are deeper with those people. But countries around the world are much more accessible to people beyond tourism because the languages are no longer black boxes. I couldn't agree more. I think it's a golden key that unlocks these societies. What for you is the best part of being in a global political risk firm? trying to understand how the world works with fantastic, even unprecedented resources around me at a time when the world around us is unwinding, where everything is alliances, what kind of political economic systems we have and value the future of democracy. These things are all open to question now in a way that in the 80s and 90s, they really weren't. And being in a position to actually not only opine, but have real expertise kick the tires, meet the people making those decisions all over the world, and maybe even make a difference to some people. Couldn't imagine doing something that would be more fun and more engaging for me. What about the flip side, specifically with respect to your current job, which has been your job all along as the head and the president of the Eurasia Group? What is the aspect or the part of your current job that sucks the most? The travel. I mean, in order to understand the world, I have to be in those countries. And I don't actually deal with jet lag very well. Sitting on a plane for 18 hours to get to Singapore is bad for your body. You're very aware of it when you're doing it, but it's absolutely critical to what I do. I I travel about half the time. And if it was up to me, if I could pick how much I'd like to travel, it'd be more like a quarter of the time. And there's really no way to do that and maintain my level of expertise without saying, no, I can't, I can't do it. But I mean, honestly, that's the only thing. There was a time when the firm was much smaller and I didn't have the money or the experience to hire people that could really manage the organization that I was spending so much time getting sucked into day-to-day management that I was losing my edge analytically. And I thought about downsizing the firm as a consequence, but then we got big enough that I could start hiring people that could really manage. Now we have CEOs for all the companies and it's so much better. That's no longer a complaint. But 10 years ago, that would have been my biggest complaint. Now it's the travel issue. Okay. Well, I actually think I have a solution for you on the uh, jet lag side, but I can talk to you about that offline. Fair enough. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten, Ian? That when they say no, it's more about them than it is about you. I mean, most things you try fail, that's fine. And, you know, anything, if you're starting a business from scratch and you have no idea what you're doing, most things will fail. Most businesses fail, most ideas fail, most requests fail. And so the best business advice I have is don't let that bother you. Just keep going, right? I mean, I've never been put in a funk or been unable to function when an idea of mine doesn't work out. And I'll tell you, the number of people that have come to me and say that they have ideas for companies that they'd love to do and they wish they could try, and and almost none of them ever do. And I think it's because they're not prepared to fail a lot. And there's nothing wrong with failing a lot. I mean, if you're not failing a lot, it means you're not trying a bunch of stuff. That's really never had an impact on the way I think about either my career or my self-worth or how the world works. I, I really don't expect people to say yes, right? I think you have to, the, your expectations need to be of yourself. They can't be of outcomes. And I think as long as you have that, you're set up for success. Mm. 
That is fantastic advice. And for our young listeners, if they want to learn more about Ian's current job and his career and his insights into the field itself, a field that he, in essence, as you heard, created, then check out the show notes for this episode to see if our main time for coffee interview has already dropped. So three, actually two final time for coffee questions. What movies, if any, or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon shows or books, Ian, do you think accurately depict your profession? You know, I thought that the beginning of Syriana was kind of interesting in this guy that was sort of in a political risk security sort of firm and was trying to understand what was happening on the ground in the Middle East, Matt Damon. It's, I wouldn't say the entire film was in any way accurate. It quickly became a spy shoot 'em up thriller, but I liked the way it was set up. And I wasn't surprised to find out that Kissinger and his firm had done some analysis and advice behind the scenes to those guys to help them make it, to make it more credible. I will tell you that though it's not in any way relevant to what we do, it's very relevant to thinking about some of the, some of the future outcomes that we're dealing with is Black Mirror, the show, and Super Sad True Love Story the book by Steingart. And if you want to think about how political risk is starting to truly transform society, you need to push the envelope a bit about where it might be in five and 10 and 15 years. And those are the two creative outlets that I think are smartest about doing kind of near future, how politics might transform society in ways that are vastly greater than we see it affecting it today. Mm, Great. I will include both of those in our show notes. Final espresso shop. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession? Surprised. I guess they'd be surprised and most of the people that are looking to pay for your advice really want to not have to change anything they're doing. They're looking, most are looking for validation and it's surprisingly politicized. I mean, hedge fund owners who you would think are the most bloodless lot, the most transactional, just tell me, you know, what the outcome is going to be to make the most money turn out to be quite ideological. And they sometimes have massive political blind spots because they really prefer one political leader as opposed to another. I think that's a great space for our field to operate and make some hay. It is a little surprising, I think, to people first coming into it that actually there's a lot of politics among the people that would really benefit from more from not having that ideological ideology blind them. Isn't that interesting? So there's politics within these firms, within these companies. You know, their worldviews. And there's no question that if you're running a hedge fund, you know, I mean, you don't want tax on carried interest to go up. There's no question that, you know, you're doing better under Republicans than you are under Democrats, for example. But that should not affect the way you invest in portfolios. You should be agnostic to that. And most of them aren't. And that's really interesting. Mm. Ian, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was terrific. And I want our young listeners to know that they can watch you just about any time, right? On G-Zero Media. That's right. Uh, G-ZeroMedia.com. They should check it out. I'd love to see more of them. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.